Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as all the issues and circumstances in world football, which you want to talk about and that we want to talk about to you as well. Big news regarding Newcastle United, which we want to talk to uh, our transfer guru, Duncan Castles, about. There's a lot of talk about takeovers and about new managers, etc. Duncan, is it possible to appoint a new manager when you don't actually know who's going to be owning the club? Um, it's not about whether it's possible, it's, uh, it's necessary. Um, Newcastle United are, what, six weeks away from starting another Premier League season. Um, they've done nothing in the transfer market because Mike Ashley has put the club on the market, has been in discussions with numerous parties about a sale, um, has told people he wants to sell the club and discussions have gone um, a fair way down the line with a number of those parties. But um, there comes a point where a decision has to be made by Ashley about selling. As we as we discussed in the podcast recently, um, Ashley, if he's not going to get the bid he wants, and, and uh, I'm told his asking price is £250 million for the equity and then the uh, buyer to take on the roughly £100 million of debt he's owned by the club, if he's not going to get that price met uh, rapidly, then he has to uh, put a new manager in place and um, delegate control over the transfer market to his people at the club to decide what changes will be made to the squad for next season. You can't go indefinitely um, waiting in the hope that a, a buyer will come and take these um, issues off their hands because um, if he leaves it too late, the, the, he's in danger of placing the value of, of the club in, in jeopardy because they don't have the right people in charge of the football side and they don't have the right personnel on the pitch for next season. Um, Rafa Benitez has forced his hand in the sense that uh, Newcastle obviously wanted to retain Benitez as manager. Um, He elected not to take on a new contract. He has a big offer uh, in China to coach there, which he's expected to to take up, Um, which means not only does Ashley have to uh, make a final decision on a buyer. Um, He also has to uh, initiate the process of getting a new manager in place for pre-season, which is just about to to start. Um, There have been approaches to a number of candidates. Um, You'll see Patrick Vieira's name uh, prominently mentioned. I could confirm there has been an approach to Vieira, who's currently a coach of Nice. it's, there is an interest in Mikel Arteta. There's also an interest in Eddie Howe. Um, you have a category of coach there where they're obviously looking at, at younger um, coaches um, who um, have some kind of connection with the Premier League. And, uh, and I think if you're looking at it from the, the perspective of having a manager in place while you're trying to sell a club, then these are quite attractive individuals um, to be hiring. Um, They're the sort of uh, candidate that a new buyer might look at themselves um, once they get control of the club, if that happens. I can tell you there's been also been an approach um, to the former uh, Manchester United and Chelsea 
uh, Porto Real Madrid Inter assistant manager Rui Faria, um, who is currently coaching in Qatar um, at Al Duhel, recently won the Emir Cup, his first uh, competitive trophy in the country. Very much fits into that category of young, um, talented coaches. Um, he would actually be the most experienced of all of them in the sense of um, uh, operating at the top level of the game, um, albeit as an assistant, um, but um, winning Champions League twice, winning um, 20 major trophies in, in, in partnership with Jose Mourinho, um, viewed by a lot of people in the game as, as very much a future um, Premier League manager in the making. The difficulty there um, would be convincing him to to leave Qatar, um, and also uh, having him having a significant release clause in his contract there. So you would have to convince him that was the the right job to go to. I think that will also be the case with with um, Patrick Vieira, um, because Vieira is at, at Nice at present. Um, had his first season in European football after a couple of um, couple of campaigns in America at New York City. Uh, did reasonably well, not brilliantly at Nice, but did reasonably well in his first season. And it has been a, identified as a, a future um, star of coaching for quite some time now. It had been talked about as a potential future Manchester City manager for a long time. All obviously been talked about as an Arsenal manager. And I believe, Ian, you have some information on, on, on how um, Vieira might uh, consider that approach from Newcastle, whether it would be an interesting job for him. I think it would be an interesting um, proposition for Duncan, that's for sure. Um, I think he's very happy coaching in Nice. He obviously had some time at New York City as well um, under the City Football Group, but um, decided to break free, if you like, of that association in order to forge his own career um, in in this coaching sense with uh, uh, Ligue 1 club. Now, what I'm told is that the approach from Newcastle um, to Patrick Vieira has come not from directly from the club, but from an intermediary who um, has said that they represent Newcastle United, but have not been entirely clear about if it's the current ownership, Mike Ashley, or a prospective ownership. Um, and he himself does not know who is that is who's, who's effectively saying to you, saying to him, um, do, do you want the job? Um, but there has been a, a concrete conversation regarding um, a contract and salary, regarding backroom staff and also what might or may not be a transfer market budget for this particular window. So this appears to me to be a very serious um, approach from, albeit an intermediary uh, representing Newcastle United, who it is, I think is very mysterious, and it's not unusual in football for this to be the case, that's for sure. Um, people get approached all the time with regards to, oh, would you be interested in the job? Would you be interested in this contract and if it were the case that our clients were to take over the club then uh, you'd be our new manager etc cetera, etc cetera. however um, Vieira is a very kind of circumspect and also intelligent person who um, is not someone to bite on something um, which is a little bit vague at the moment 
So from what I've heard uh, from people close to Patrick Vieira is that he will wait until things become much clearer. And um, Duncan, you reported um, to us on the transfer window uh, a week ago that Mike Ashley had set a deadline for any takeover negotiations to be confirmed. So I suspect that Patrick Vieira is waiting to find out who, in actual fact, is the person who either is or expects to be running the club. Yes, look, it's complicated. This is unnecessarily complicated for Newcastle. That's the, the... The clear message from all of it is if you don't have a definite owner going into the season, you have um, difficulties in convincing any candidate um, of what the budget's going to be and and what the future's going to be like at the club. And and Newcastle Newcastle is definitely an attractive um, proposition to a lot of people in football and and coaches of the the calibre. of the cadre that they are they're examining at present because these people know that the, the dimension of Newcastle support, they know the size of the football club, they know the potential of the football club, um, they know how difficult it is to win games um, at Newcastle United. Um, and there there is a perspective there that were the ownership to be sorted out, this could be a very significant job to have in English football and a chance to um, to to leave a mark and be part of a of, of a developing project um, that can compete with eventually with the top teams in England. But um, to to have this conversation going on just before the players are coming back for pre-season um, with a few weeks left of the transfer window is by no means ideal. And um, and I mean Vieira's situation is interesting in that. Being at Nice, he's actually at a club at present, which is the subject of of takeover talk. In that um, uh, the, the the billionaire um, Jim, Jim Ratcliffe, who um, who's described by my one of my newspapers, the Sunday Times, as the wealthiest man in in Britain, with a um, a estimated wealth of over twenty uh, billion pounds, um, has uh, been in conversations with Nice. Um, to try and buy that football club for several months now. His brother, Bob, who is um, actually the president of a Swiss club that the that the brothers already own called Lausanne Sport, uh, is on record about um, the, 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 um, the Ratcliffe family's interest in Nice, uh, which is currently owned by um, a Chinese-American consortium. Um, I believe that talks are ongoing there um, and uh, there is the potential for something to be solved uh, in terms of that purchase before um, the start of this season. So, so Vieira finds himself in a situation where he, he can't be sure of his owners um, at his current club. Uh, he's been there one season. Uh, and he can't be sure of the owners of the club that are approaching him, asking him to move to England, which is uh, which must quite an unusual scenario for a coach in, in terms of having to make decisions about his future. And of course, Duncan, Jim Ratcliffe uh, and his brother Bob um, have also been linked to potential takeovers of Manchester United and indeed of Chelsea. Um, So the fact that they've approached Nice, where the coach is Patrick Vieira, is a very interesting prospect regarding what Patrick Vieira's career path might be. Um, My information is that um, 
Jim Ratcliffe is only interested in a club where he can make a profit. Uh, his business um, reputation is one which he is not particularly um, interested in vanity purchases, despite the fact that he obviously um, took over Team Sky recently, the uh, the cycling team, um, and uh, has invested money in that. Um, but that was a fairly minimal investment with for a man of his wealth. So taking a football club over is a much more difficult and interesting prospect for Jim Ratcliffe. But it's also one which he would want to and would indeed demand the prospect of um, there being a, a profit at the end of uh, every year, et cetera, et cetera. Much like the Glazers have done at Manchester United, but not so much that um, Roman Bramwich has done at Chelsea with regards to his personal loans to the club, the fact that they need to redevelop the stadium, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess my question to you, Duncan, is are we looking at something much bigger here? Is this a, a sort of, I guess, I guess, a small play where we're going to see a bigger play come in uh, to uh, the next three or four months of the football calendar? Well, I don't know about timing, but um, Ratcliffe himself has been quite explicit about putting um, far more money than he already has into sport. He um, last month gave a press conference and, and was quoted as saying, uh, we make six to seven billion dollars a year in profit. What's wrong with investing a bit of that into sport? Um, they've invested, as you say, into cycling, into football um, already. Um, they're putting money into uh, marathon running, um, uh, organising a challenge event uh, to try and uh, and, and uh, set a new world record um, for the marathon. Um, I, talking to people in the city about his interest in Chelsea uh, and Manchester United, they're quite clear that he and his brother are making all the noises and making all the efforts to invest more money in football. They see Nice as an attractive project in Ligue 1, um, the way uh, French football has developed. I think it's quite attractive in terms of its location on the south coast. They've talked about the club already having a stadium and a good training facilities in place, which is attractive to them. Um, I think they want to use uh, science um, in sports across the board um, to develop marginal gains and they feel that they can, if they, if they invest their money effectively, they can be successful in, in an array of sports um, in that fashion. The, the interest in Chelsea is long-standing. Um, the complication there, of course, is working out um, the exact value of the club um, and what you can get it. For, from Roman Abramovich for um, Ratcliffe is a Manchester United fan um, so you would have to think that it would be in principle more appealing to him to buy Manchester United it's obviously a, a clearer purchase in the sense that Manchester United is uh, owned by Americans and uh, and has a percentage a percentage of its shares on the stock market so there's a defined valuation uh, in a sense in the of those shares that are on the stock market. But Manchester United will be significantly more expensive because it is a, a profitable club um, in terms of real uh, underlying profit, operating profits. It's unparalleled 
in world football. So for a buyer to come in, you strip out the, the debt um, that the Glazers have saddled with the club with um, and uh, the interest payments, very significant interest payments and uh, directors payments that are made each year and, uh, and put that into football um, rather than uh, into profit for the owner. Um, and to annual profit for the owner. And suddenly you have a, a far more um, powerful club, which <laughs> anyone who's listened to the transfer podcast will, will see that um, there, are, there are significant ways in which you can, and easy ways in which you can change the management and organisation of Manchester United to make them a, a more efficient force. So it, it's understandable that he is, would be looking at both of those um, as candidates to buy uh, if he eventually decides to push the button on on the big big purchase, which would be that of an English football club. And um, again, Chelsea and Manchester United, the scale of of uh, of investment required to obtain the shares is such that would either of those clubs buying them would probably make them the biggest purchase of a sports franchise um, globally ever. So it, it's, not a, it's not a minor decision to make. Um, it's not a decision many people can make. But um, talking to the people in the city, they see Ratcliffe as one of the few people who has the resources to do this and has the interest and is working a way to try and do it at present. It feels a bit like Ratcliffe's kind of stalking um, different targets, Duncan, in terms of... Um, where he might invest his money, where he might spend his money. Um, I think it's interesting that you bring up the point that he is a Cradle Manchester United fan. And while the Glazers insist that uh, Manchester United is not for sale at any price, we know that the, the global market uh, cap on that club is around £4 billion currently. Um, they would want more than that, I suspect. But this is something which is within... Jim Ratcliffe's range of expenditure. So, again, he's a serious player. But at the same time, he's somebody who wants to get value for money. Uh, and that's probably why he's shopping around. So, Nice leads to Chelsea, leads to Manchester United. I think we could probably see something moving in the next two to three months with regards to um, where he might decide to or want to place his money. Now, from investment in football clubs to investment in football talent, um, Duncan has a, a very, very interesting tale regarding a Liverpool protégé. Interestingly, someone who's not English, because um, obviously Liverpool have invested a lot of time and faith in players like uh, Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold, but indeed um, their defender, Rafael Camacho, Duncan, who has decided to leave the club because he felt he wasn't getting enough game time. In fact, only one senior appearance, um, despite the, the investment Liverpool made in him as a player. Um, what's, what's happened with regards to his transfer to Sporting Lisbon? Well, it's interesting you describe him as a defender because that's his, his one um, senior uh, start for Liverpool was at right back in January um, in an FA Cup tie that uh, that the club lost. Um, he's not actually a defender. He's a he's an attacking midfielder. Um, 
quite often played off the right. Uh, very good statistics in terms of uh, reserve and, and UEFA Youth League football last season. I think scored four and six appearances in UEFA Youth League. He's just turned 19. Um, broadly regarded as a talent, um, he's decided to, to sign for sporting. Um, Liverpool have taken £5 million as the initial transfer fee on that deal with £2 million of performance-related variables. There is a 20% um, sell-on should Sporting sell on to another club down the line. And Liverpool say they also have a buyback option in the deal. Um, Liverpool definitely wanted to retain Camacho. Um, I'm told they offered him £55,000 a week uh, as a new contract. Um, He had one year left in his current deal and uh, was threatening to leave for, um, for, well, not quite for free, but for training compensation only, so minimal um, payment uh, to another European club um, when he left there, if if he'd gone down that route. So Liverpool were effectively forced into doing a deal. Interestingly, I'm told he's taken lower wages at Sporting um, than he was in that he'd been offered at Liverpool. Um, the reason for this is he wanted first-team football and Sporting have told them they will make him uh, an integral part of the project. They'll get him on the pitch. They'll give him the opportunity to uh, demonstrate his abilities. Uh, he feels he's ready for first-team football. And um, I think you've got to kind of commend a player who has the belief in themselves to, to say, I'm ready to play football and I'm prepared to take less money at another club um, in order to demonstrate that I'm ready for first-team football. I think Liverpool made an error with Camacho in that um, he, I were talking about this desire he had to play. This isn't something that's, uh, that's appeared recently. He wanted to go to Sporting in January on loan. Um, a, do- a deal had been put in place with the player in the club. Sporting wanted to take him for the second half of the season. Uh, he thought he was going to get there and then Jurgen Klopp uh, blocked the loan from happening. Why did he block it? Because he had injuries um, to Joe Gomez, um, Trent Alexander-Arnold, and he needed to cover it right back. And that's why um, Camacho's one starting appearance for Liverpool ended up being at right back because he he got Camacho to play there. Camacho was not happy with that. He's also not happy that um, for the rest of the season, his entire game, game time amounted for the first team amounted to one substitute appearance um, in injury time um, and therefore proved resistant to a series of of basically very lucrative offers he received from Liverpool to stay there, which is an indication of how greatly they value his talents as a player. It's obviously someone they did not want to lose. Sporting weren't the only club that were in for him. Uh, Schalke also made... Um, a, a significant salary offer uh, to Camacho to move there and were prepared to meet those same uh, financial terms that Sporting paid to Liverpool to get him. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how he does in Portugal next season, whether he's right about being ready to play. I think it's an interesting category of player uh, and it's a kind of bubbling market where you have these um, quite often uh, talent signed from other countries like Portugal, um, Holland, France, by Premier League clubs, um, and they sign them by by making them good financial deals at age 16, uh, put them in their academies to develop. 
Um, and they end up with, with pretty significant investments in them in terms of the money they paid as salary, quite often the money they paid to agents or the family to persuade them to come to England. Um, and normally the, there's no scope for them to play in the first team uh, for those three years from 16 to 19. Uh, you'd really have to be an exceptional talent to get yourself into the first team of Liverpool at that age um, or the first team of Manchester City. So that these clubs tend to have a, you know, a stockpile of some of the best um, young footballers in Europe who they put a lot of money into securing but can't give game time to at their, their clubs. Now, these players are seeing um, people like Jean-Felix um, break into the Benfica team, play half a season for Benfica and then be picked off by Atletico Madrid for 120 million euros, which will be the, I think, the fourth highest transfer fee ever paid. At a lesser level, you've got Jadon Sancho uh, going to Borussia Dortmund and being valued at over 100 million euros um, within the space of a year. Uh, you've got Brahim Diaz at Manchester City again, um, taken by Madrid for a very significant transfer fee, big wages. So what you see is the guys who are left in the academy have been playing alongside these individuals, thinking, well, I'm as good as him. Um, I should be paid at that level. Not only should I be paid at that level, I, I'm good enough to play first-team football for a, a Champions League club like Borussia Dortmund, maybe even for Real Madrid. Um, so I want that now which leaves City, Liverpool, Chelsea with a, with a conundrum of do you try and buy their loyalty by putting their wages at an even higher level um, and protecting the investment you've already made in the player or do you accept that um, probably this guy isn't going to turn into or that there's a risk that he's not going to turn into the player we expect him to be and we'd be throwing more money um, a, a project with no um, no guarantee of return. Um, quite often, the decisions taken out of their hands. It has been with Brahim Diaz, although Manchester City did well in terms of the fee they got, um, and it has been with Camacho. But it's a it's an interesting little segment of the market which has kind of been generated by accident. And uh, there's a lot of agents in football talking about how how uh, teenage uh, players who have none or very, very little first-team professional football experience have incredible demands and expectations in terms of what their next contract should be in the Premier League at present. Not quite teenage, Duncan, but we, we saw a really um, interesting example of a player who um, was snapped up at a young age um, by a Premier League club and uh, failed to develop, failed to play, uh, in that club and then made a move abroad um, like Rafael Camacho is doing now and Jadon Sancho as you've mentioned uh, played uh, a couple of seasons in a foreign country uh, was outstanding and then was transferred back to an English Premier League club uh, for a relatively small amount of money and who is now valued at probably three or four times that value. And of course, the player I'm talking about is, is Mo Salah at Liverpool. Um, it seems like as, as a nation, or sorry, as a, as a league, the Premier League do attempt to, um, and, and successfully, buy uh, the best young talent in the world, not just Europe, but outside of Europe as well. But then, in many ways, fail to 
um, come through in terms of um, promises of development or certainly opportunities in terms of the first team as well and end up um, maybe losing that player for a small amount of money and seeing that player's uh, value exponentially develop uh, with regards to getting first team football elsewhere. I mean, is the Premier League missing a trick here with regards to just how much they're investing in players but then not allowing them access to their first team uh, in order to develop them further? I think it's very difficult. I think it's kind of a natural process in that you'll, clubs will charge their scouts with finding the best 16-year-olds. Um, you know, that's the age in which an English club can take another player from Europe um, and, and uh, trying to find them. And then they'll use the resource they have to, to sign those players. And as you say, they can outbid um, clubs from most other countries because there's more money in the Premier League. But um, to have the development pathway and process isn't a simple thing. Uh, you're also doing that and you're, you're far more uh, focused on doing that with your first team. So they're trying, they're trying to buy the best players for the first team, get them in the team working successfully. Um, and it, it's, it's almost impossible to have the two things working perfectly in tandem because if you've got the first team right, there's not going to be a space for the younger players uh, to grow into um, unless they're absolutely exceptional. I mean, just again, look at Manchester City. Um, there's a feeling that Phil Foden is the best English player in his age range. Look at the difficulty Phil Foden has had of getting even minimal game time um, at Manchester City. Towards the end of last season, he, um, he did well. Um, he got into the team. He was, uh, was picked in, in certain games, first choice ahead of um, more experienced players. Whether that worked in, in all of those games is a, is a matter for debate. But he's, he's finally put himself on a level where he's a serious candidate to be um, a starting midfielder for Manchester City. But he's supposedly the best of his age group in England and he's had to fight for several years to get to that level. So if you're an intermediate category player, um, it's extremely difficult unless, unless there are um, a spate of injuries in your position. And, and you happen to get a run in a team by chance um, to, to develop that way. I mean, let's look at Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who um, we told you uh, was going to Manchester United last week for £55 million. The, the, the deal has gone through this week. Um, he was at Crystal Palace. He's not a team that um, have a surfeit of super talented first-team players. If you look at the history of his development at Crystal Palace, it came about because they had a spate of injuries at right back and Roy Hodgson was effectively uh, forced to throw him into the team. Um, not that Roy Hodgson didn't have faith in him, he rated him as a player, but he didn't do it voluntarily. This wasn't a careful development pathway. Aaron Wan-Bissaka, we've decided, is the future of Crystal Palace at right back. We're going to give him games um, when there are easier games to play, that's quite a difficult thing to do with Palace because you're always generally always fighting against relegation. But there wasn't any strategic, um, he's a super talent, we need to bring him through and, uh, and make him our starting right back. He got into the team for, I think it was, uh, if I remember correctly, Chelsea, Crystal Palace, um, Arsenal, 
it was the uh, Tottenham possibly, but at three, he went into a team against three of the top teams in the Premier League. So they're not the games you would choose if you're if you're bringing a player gently through. He did very well. He stayed there. Um, a year and a half later, he's now the most expensive specialist fullback by transfer fee in the history of the game. So if you can't do it at Crystal Palace. Um, you're probably not going to be able to do it at Manchester City or Liverpool. So I, I don't know if there is a, a clever strategy here. Um, ultimately, young players, regardless of how talented they are, they need to play in the first team to demonstrate um, how good they are and also to grow as players. Um, and they have to get that access somewhere. And I think that's why you see clubs like Liverpool the, the most successful part of their transfer strategy has been to focus on clubs like Roma and Southampton, um, where they know they can buy their players because they've got the, um, the financial wherewithal to put down offers on the table that a Roma and a Southampton will accept. Uh, finding, targeting the best players in, the, in that section of clubs where it's possible for them to recruit from, uh, and putting the money, money down and bringing them and, and being surgical uh, in the recruitment and improving their first team that way. That's, you know, that's not about buying young players. It's just about um, we need experienced, ready-to-go players of a certain type. Uh, we can only get them from certain clubs. Um, there's no point going to war with, with the clubs who have the same financial resources as us because that's going to be too expensive. Um, that's a different kind of planning and it shouldn't get confused with the the, the selection of 16-year-olds Um and uh, and a, a, a kind of design process where you buy this 16-year-old and expect them to be in the first team at 23 because it really doesn't happen very often at these top clubs. I would confess to being one of the people who raised an eyebrow, Duncan, when um, Leroy Sané transferred to Manchester City in 2016 from Schalke for 45 million euros at that time. You reported six weeks ago on the Transfer Window podcast uh, Bayern's interest in buying the player. Um, Nothing has happened since then. Um, What I'm told from contacts in Germany is that Sané has um, expressed some reservations about joining Bayern Munich in their current situation and that Bayern themselves are feeling a little bit put out by the fact that they are, let's just say, well, obviously they're, they're equivalent of Real Madrid in terms of status, and um, they're slightly worried by the fact that Sani has not committed to them completely in terms of a move, i.e. Well, regarding his own personal terms. Obviously, he doesn't have any influence uh, regarding Manchester City's um, valuation of him, which... Uh, you said was in excess of £70 million. So um, that transfer is taking a long time to do in terms of uh, the interest expressed, the fact that Sani, as you reported, Duncan, um, did not go on well with Pep Guardiola in the last season at Manchester City. Um, I'm just wondering, where's that at right now? Because if Sani's not going to leave, does that mean that he comes back and with tail between his legs? and um, decides that City is a place to be and saves them, let's face it, um, trying to replace them, a very expensive transfer. Well, I wouldn't say nothing's happened. Um, 
Bayern have made a lot of statements about wanting to sign the player. You've seen their um, prominent players such as uh, Robert Lewandowski talk about how he'd like to see Zani at the club. You've seen, I think, pretty much every member of the, the Bayern Munich uh, executive board talk about how they would like to sign the player um, and how they're trying to do that. Um, you're right, um, according to Bayern, no um, bid has been made for the player. I think Karl-Heinz Rummenigger um, talked publicly this week uh, and said, um, we are waiting to find out if he wants to come here, um, whether he's going to accept uh, our terms. Uh, and uh, once that, once we've got that established, we'll start negotiating with Manchester City in terms of price. Um, I think it's it's a product of of where things were when when I first reported on on the possibility that Zani might leave, which was which actually two months ago now, uh, in my column for the the Daily Record, and it's um, a difficult relationship with Pep Guardiola. Um, Pep Guardiola not being impressed by the way Sani handled himself in training uh, and uh, the club realising having made uh, multiple offers of a new contract um, to the player that they had a problem on their hands and that there was a possibility that he would not sign a new deal. Um, if he did not sign a new deal, they would be looking going into uh, next season with on the second last year of a contract um, and by the end of next season he'd be down to a year of contracts so his, his transfer value would be significantly diminished and um, obviously the, the the feeling they had from the player was there was no guarantee he would sign a new deal. Sani rates himself extremely highly. Um, he thinks he should be uh, an automatic starter for Manchester City. He thinks he is one of the top attacking players in the world. And to be fair to him, his statistics uh, at Manchester City last season, in a season which he, his game time was limited um, quite significantly by Guardiola, are very, very good. So, you, you know, from an analytics point of view, he looks excellent. Anyone who understands football can see that he has a pace to go past players that no one else at Manchester City has and, and makes a difference in certain games with that pace and breaking down opposition defences. Uh, and that's a pace that will apply at any level of the game. Um, whether Bayern Munich can persuade him to come is another matter. And, and that's obviously their reservations and their, um, their putting uh, these statements out in the media to try and force um, his hand and also I think to explain to their supporters where things are going. Their budget to buy the player is 80 million euros. Um, I'm not sure that Manchester City would accept that. I think that would be a, quite a difficult um, negotiation. They'd want more for, for Zani than that. Um, fundamentally, the club wants to retain him, but they're not gonna, they will not retain him indefinitely without signing a new contract. Um, and the financial terms he wants pl would place him very high on Manchester City's pay scale, which is something they, they want to avoid doing. So it's still, a, it's still a complex problem for all sides to solve. Um, and uh, I think it, it's not just a problem for Manchester City in terms of um, 
whether they get Zani tied down to the contract they'd like to have him tied down to and can have his future assured and then can let Pat Guardiola work on um, on his behaviour, um, on his integration into the team and on uh, getting him not to be a problem within the squad. It's They also need to have this resolved because if ultimately... Um, the decision from Zani is I'm going to leave, I'm going to take up an offer at Bayern Munich or another club that comes in, in for him and that is eminently possible in this market with the, the quality of player he is. Um, if that happens, Manchester City needs a replacement um, and we've seen them allow uh, Jean-Felix um, go to Atletico Madrid um, who was an obvious um, replacement for Zani um, Atletico moved quickly to to pay the release clause to Benfica to convince the player to come, um, Diego Simeone being extremely influential in that. I'm told that people around Felix would have preferred him to go to Manchester City, but ultimately a decision was made there, which meant City lost the opportunity to, to, to secure a player that they did a lot of work on, um, both Chiki Bergeristan and... Um, and uh, the, there was a, a meeting between um, the chief executive of Benfica, so the chief executive of Manchester City, the president of Benfica, and uh, Felix's agent recently to discuss the, the transfer fee. But that one's gone now. So if Sani leaves, they have to find someone else um, to to work in that position. And the, and the thing with City is they're they're similar to Liverpool, and they're pretty surgical about their, their transfer deals. They don't want to make mistakes. Um, so there's a limited number of candidates they can have for for those kind of roles, um, and it's an important role within the team. I think it's significant that um, at the end of last season, um, Pep Guardiola made it quite clear that Phil Foden would have a much bigger role to play in Manchester City's first team next season. Uh, that's the one coming up, 1920. Um, and therefore, I believe that... Uh, the departure of Leroy Sané would effectively make a place available. I'm not saying necessarily um, to start every week, but certainly to be um, much more involved in um, first-team games in the Premier League and Champions League games, which are important to the club. So I would suspect that Sané's potential move to Bayern Munich um, would not upset uh, Pep Guardiola too much with regards to the fact that he could integrate um, Foden into his matchday squad in a much more active way. However, it has to be said that with David Silva's announcement that he's retiring, um, well, not retiring, but certainly leaving Manchester City when his contract expires um, uh, next summer in 2020, that uh, that would be something which obviously uh, will affect Pep Guardiola's uh, transfer policy with regarding how to um, replace him long term, but also um, how will Foden perform in this coming season when he's given a proper chance to do so? And if Sani stays, how will that actually um, work into the arithmetic of how you put four into three, which is obviously City's attacking three behind uh, Sergio Aguero? So it's, it's a very kind of um, fluid situation for Manchester City. Regarding that, I think the problem, Ian, is you lose pace. That's the yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Sani goes. Foden's not quick, well, is he? No, well, he's not. Nobody's as quick. That's that's the issue. Sani's a particular kind of weapon that Manchester City have, which is 
raw pace on on the left wing, which solves problems for them. You've seen um, Raheem Sterling used off that left wing quite a lot last season because Guardiola wanted Zani out of the team. And while it worked a lot of the time, they won most of their matches, there were obvious games in which it wasn't working as well and that injection of pace, which quite quite often happened with Zani coming off the bench, was the difference maker. If you remove that from Manchester City's squad going into next season, they do not have the same range of attacking weapons as they do now. Um, and that's that's the issue for City. This is a significant loss. The, the only reason they're considering it is because the player has refused to sign a new contract and has a difficult relationship with Guardiola. It's a combination of a financial decision and a, a management player decision. In, in a proper scale of things, they do not want to lose this player because they have to find a, a different type to replace him and there's no guarantee you get someone as effective as him with that kind of pace fitting into the system easily. So it's it's not ideal to be in this situation with you know five, six weeks to go to the start of the Premier League season. Well, as I said, I think Sani at 47 million euros at the time looked like a kind of you know, eye-watering uh, price for a player who was so young and so untried. But I think he's definitely justified that investment in him. However, um, selling him obviously at a premium would be potentially financially beneficial to Manchester City with regards to FFP. But at the same time, losing a player of that ability uh, would mean that they'd have to replace them probably with a player who's going to cost much more than that. So it's a kind of catch-22 in terms of what Manchester City have to do going forward. It wouldn't, Duncan, be a Transfer Window podcast week without discussing one particular Brazilian um, attacking forward. Uh, Of course, we're talking about Neymar Jr. And his on and off uh, transfer out of PSG. Uh, latest information is, um, as you have reported, that Paris Saint-Germain are willing to sell the player. Um, we have heard from uh, Barcelona's vice president in the last 24 hours that at the moment, uh, any deal for Neymar is not, quote, not on the table. It's not something they're considering. But Duncan, you have, I think, read between the lines with regards to that interview. And you think that perhaps there's more to it than a simple, well, we're not interested now, but we could be later. I, look, I think if you look at more of the interview, that, that's the headline that's been taken um, in the UK. But if you look at a few other versions of the interview and more of the quotes, there's very much a, um, an indication that they like the player and uh, they're keen on the idea that Neymar wants to come to to them and uh, uh, and it's something to be explored. I um, don't think there's been any change in where things stand as they were last week, which is that there have been discussions um, between Neymar's representatives in Barcelona and Neymar has said he will take a pay cut to come to Barcelona. Um, Barcelona are offering uh, Philip Coutinho, Usman Dembele, uh, as part of that deal, they don't want to spend more than 100 million euros cash um, in reacquiring Neymar. And so they will put players towards PSG to make it happen. Um, P- 
PSG are putting a lot of pressure on Neymar from their end. Um, we saw the, the president, um, Nasser Al-Khalifi, talking about superstar behaviour and how it had to end. Um, I think there was, a, there was at least one report uh, this week in which um, clearly briefed from Paris Saint-Germain that they would like to retain the player, um, but they felt that he was only performing at 60% of his abilities and that had to improve. And if it wasn't going to improve, then they, um, they'd certainly consider uh, moving him on. So the, the pressure from the PSG end is, is clear in that if Neymar is going to stay at the club, he's not going to have, um, this, he's being told he's not going to have the special treatment and the special status he's had for the last two years. Barcelona want to do it. Um, it's, but as, as I said last week when we talked about this, these kind of deals with this amount of money involved, um, with these kind of clubs involved, so clubs on a similar status, a similar um, financial uh, wherewithal, uh, with the pride um, of Qatar um, allowing their... Uh, headline big money purchase to go and the way that has to be presented in the correct fashion as in it's their decision to do it they're doing it for sporting purposes um, they get their money back or more on the deal um, all of those things are uh, are complex and, and have to be negotiated carefully and, and in the background you also have Real Madrid who um, Florentino Perez has been trying to sign Neymar for the best part of a decade and um, lost him to Barcelona when he first moved from Brazilian football. Is on record um, at uh, the, a recent Ballon d'Or ceremony saying it would be much easier for Neymar to win the Ballon d'Or if he if he was playing for Real Madrid. You know, the, you, you don't really have to search very hard to find the breadcrumbs on this one. Um, and while Madrid... I think do not want to be actively seen um, uh, getting into a bidding race with Barcelona for Neymar. And we'll be aware that Neymar has, um, has kind of opened the door to Barcelona and said, I will take pay cut and, and I will do these things to facilitate the move. If they see the opportunity to take him, um, I think they'll play that in the background um, to see whether they can make it happen. Barcelona very much the favourites, but Madrid are definitely monitoring this um, to see what what can uh, eventuate during the last uh, months of the transfer market and whether Florentino could just snatch that long-desired target away from Barcelona. I'll stick my neck out here, Duncan, and say that I think that Madrid are more likely to sign Neymar than Barcelona are at this moment in time. Um, conversations I've had in the last couple of days with people in the Spanish capital um, have certainly suggested that um, they will play a very low-profile game with regards to um, what happens in the next couple of weeks with Neymar stroke Barcelona, but that when the time comes, they are able, willing, and certainly motivated to sign Neymar from under the noses of their uh, arch rivals. Um, and I would think that given Griezmann's um, impending move to Barcelona and the amount of money that's going to cost them, uh, as well as the fact they have FFP, let's just say, um, contentious issues with regards to um, their spending, 
then Neymar might be a transfer too far for them uh, in this window. Whereas with the player's situation regarding his desire, or certainly PSG's desire, to have him uh, leave the club, a more realistic option for him than Barcelona at this particular moment in time. Regardless of the fact that that would be a blow to, obviously, the socios of Barcelona, who um, think that Neymar's um, you know, spiritual home should be calm now, I, I still think that Madrid, um, as we've documented regularly on the Transfunded podcast, um, have coveted the player and would see, and certainly Florentino Perez would see it as a, a massive coup for Madrid to, uh, to sign that player. I think the problem problem for Madrid is one: can you do it while signing Paul Pogba, who's in the Dean Sedan wants, having already done Eden Hazard, who plays in the same preferred starting position as as Neymar. But I, I think there's also a difficulty here, and this is what I'm I'm hearing um, from the Spanish end: is that while Florentino absolutely would still like to have Neymar. He, can't, he does not want to be seen to get into a bidding war with Barcelona and lose again. So he can't use the normal Real Madrid tactics in terms of using the press and the media and using their interest um, to, to push for a move. So he, this one has to be done if it's going to happen in the background and it has to take advantage of Barcelona not committing. Um, yeah. Neymar's preference clearly seems to be to go to Barcelona. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's telling Lionel Messi, who's uh, who's been active in, in convincing Barcelona to make this move. Um, therefore, uh, Florentino would have to be very sure that that deal is not going to get through um, to step in and hijack it and take it from himself. Because if he's seen to attempt to hijack and he ends up at Barcelona again, that sure. is a huge embarrassment for the second time over over a, 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 a very public period. Well, I'd, I'd say this. In 2003, um, the Spanish press were convinced that David Beckham was signing for Barcelona. And in fact, he signed for Real Madrid. Of course, Ronaldinho then went to Barcelona and uh, uh, was a catalyst for a period of sustained success at that club as well. Um, so I guess it, it, nothing would surprise us with regards to La Liga in terms of transfers. And as I said, um, speaking to people in Madrid, they think it's possible that Neymar will end up there. Of course, what's happening now in football is that players are returning for pre-season training. Um, and that includes doing biometric tests, of which the weigh-in is one of the most, um, let's just say, uh, frightening parts of uh, their day-to-day because uh, clubs record their weight and then they will then obviously record their weight when they come back. And the quickfire round this Friday is going to be who has going to come back as most overweight in the big clubs this particular summer. Duncan, I know you've got someone who you would like to propose as a candidate. Would you like to share that with our listeners, please? Well, I I think if I have to put money on this one, my money is going to be on uh, the Manchester United left-back, Luke Shaw. 
Um, and I think anyone who saw him, um, <laughs> not trimmed, what, just what, just not, just in preseason or just normally or. Well, I, th- I think if I think if these biometric tests were done at the end of last season, um, Luke Shaw would be an absolute um, shoe-in uh, winner of this prize because um, anyone who saw him playing in those those last few games will have seen the deterioration in his uh, in his physical performance, uh, um, walking back when when opposition were were attacking Manchester United, and and a, and a very su- suspicious. Um, padding of his Manchester United shirt. Um, we saw last summer um, those pictures of him on the on the beach um, looking uh, considerably overweight, which were, of course, um, followed up by images of, of Luke Shaw on his Instagram uh, doing a personal training regime and, um, and uh, with, with a six-pack prominently uh, displayed. Who knows? Uh, uh, what whether- kind of six-pack was that? Well, <laughs> yeah, the six pack on display changed as the uh, as the summer um, went forward, and it, it seemed to me a very uh, deliberate PR campaign on the on the part of Luke Shaw after being embarrassed by the, the first set of holiday photos. But I don't think we've seen any images of him on the beach yet this summer. Um, so I, my betting is on on Luke Shaw coming back. Um, and having the worst uh, biometric test results at, at Manchester United this summer. Well, probably a good idea that there's no um, social media posts yet from Luke Shaw regarding his summer, um, given the uh, those ones that uh, came in last year, as Duncan has referred to of him on a boat and being slightly bigger than the boat that he was on. Um, my particular um, recommendation would be for the wonderfully talented Liverpool midfielder Jadon Shakiri, who reminds me of um, a story I heard when uh, the Celtic manager Vim Janssen went for a haircut. And uh, for any of you who know of Vim Janssen or want to look him up on social media, he's got like a bubble perm from the 1970s. <laughs> and um, ha- on having a haircut at a salon that my own brother actually uh, puts his trust in, uh, when he was asked when the mirror was put behind his head, he said, wider. No, I want wider, meaning wider. Um, <laughs> and, and indeed, I suspect Zerdan Shakiri is a bit wider than he was when he uh, uh, was on that celebration uh, top deck bus in the Liverpool uh, Champions League parade. Let's see if he can prove us wrong. For Freddie's edition of the Transfer Window podcast. Uh, We're about to say goodbye. However, um, if you want to continue the debate with us, please do get in touch at Transfer Podcast, which of course is our transfer handle for the podcast itself. Individually, please get in touch with at Duncan Castles and me at Garbo SJ. If you like what you hear, uh, please give something back to us and give us a five-star rating on iTunes where we can then get in touch with more people who, let's face it, share our views, our opinions and our love of football. Um, We'll be back on Monday and it just needs for me to say um, we'll see you through the transfer window and thanks for listening. (laughs) 